This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, to say hi. It's so good to see you. Thank you for coming. All right. Do you have a microphone? Ah, oh, you got a handheld one. Look at this. All right. So, I, I, you know, I, I didn't tell you that story. When we were at Church of the Apostles and you're asking me, well, Christy scans have been coming up. Like, how does he know more than I know that my wife's scans have got to be coming up? And yeah, yeah you did. <laughs> so thank you for being here and for your prayers. Her scans were Tuesday. They were great. Oh, that's good. Praise God. <laughs> And how about a big round of applause for Eric Erickson, everybody? But I'll tell you, this is one of the most compelling voices in the conservative movement today. I'm honored to be with you. Let let me, I I, want to ask you the question that I asked Tim Scott to start, and I guess for all all the presidential candidates. I I thought I was the only one you invited. Well, sorry. Um, With all the, the vast array of people running for president, including your former boss, why should Americans say, Mike Pence is the guy we need in the White House. Well, first off, um, let me say thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you, especially especially uh, for the warm welcome from my incredible wife, Karen, who was the best second lady the United States of America has ever had. Um, I, I think the answer to that question belongs uh, to the people of the United States. But for us, I can tell you why we're running. You know, we've been incredibly blessed. And uh, I appreciated the introduction, reminding people that, you know, I was, I was a House conservative leader in Congress before it was cool. You know, I was a conservative governor of Indiana, and it's a great privilege to be your vice president. Um, I was raised to believe, though, that to whom much is given, much will be required. And when Karen and I look at the devastation in this country, when we look at the way Joe Biden has weakened America at home and abroad, we just couldn't sit this one out. I mean, I think America's in a lot of trouble. And I think now is the time for all of us who have the ability to turn this country around to step forward and each of us to do our part. And I promise you, we're going to work our hearts out to earn your support. Because I know if you gave us the privilege to be your president, We will know what to do and who to do it with on day one, and we will turn this country around. So help me God. That's why I'm running. We have this wild situation right now uh, where we do have the current president of the United States and much of his Pentagon leadership uh, talking about very publicly how we're falling behind. We, we don't have ammunition. We're struggling to give things to Ukraine. The Chinese are increasingly dominant. Uh, it, I mean, what has gone wrong in this administration that we can't produce enough bullets to, to fight a war? Well, you, you, you all deserve to know that Joe Biden's been trying to cut military spending since he took office. 
And the truth is, while I, I welcome I welcome Republicans in Congress figuring out a way to pay the nation's bills. The reality is if they don't go forward with all 13 of the appropriations bills, you're, you're going to have a mandatory 1% cut in defense spending in 2025. I mean, this is at a time when China is literally floating a battleship in the Asia Pacific about every month. I mean, they're expanding to a 350-ship navy. We're still falling way behind, having articulated that goal a long time ago. You know, when we came in, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that we rebuilt our military. We finally began to give our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guard, and space force the resources that they needed to defend our nation. But for the next president of the United States, it isn't that we need to rebuild a military. We need to build a military fitted to the widening challenges in an ever more dangerous world. I mean, war is raging in Eastern Europe. China continues to menace in the Asia Pacific. Iran is back to its malign influences. And I promise you, as a, not just as a former vice president, but as the father of a captain in the United States Marine Corps, and the father-in-law of a lieutenant in the United States Navy, we're going to build a military fitted to the widening challenges of the 21st century. And we're going to make sure we have the ability to defend our nation and keep the peace among our allies. That's job one. All right. I got to pivot for just a second here because you did mention the, the, the kids. I mean, I got to ask you, you've got a new grandchild recently. I mean, you, you got a family. And what's it like to be balancing seeing the grandkids and the kids while also barnstorming the country running for president? Well, thanks for mentioning our granddaughters, Eric. <laughs> Best thing that's happened to us since we left the White House is that uh, uh, we saw the birth of not one, not two, but three of actually, in fact, the most beautiful granddaughters ever born in the history of the world. <laughs> and uh, we're incredibly spoiled, uh, and we've been busy spoiling them. But I'll tell you, we, you know, since we left office, we've been busy. I went to 35 states in the midterm elections campaigning uh, for Republican candidates. Uh, we've traveled across the country a great deal. But uh, I promise you, one of the things that uh, Mrs. Pence always makes happen is uh, a stop in. We got a, we got one, uh, a son and, and, uh, and daughter-in-law and, and two granddaughters stationed in Arizona. Our daughter and her husband are stationed in California. Another daughter lives in Florida. And... Uh, I can tell you, for the Pence family, it's, uh, it's all about faith and family and freedom. And um, uh, we always make time for our families. Good for you. Even in the midst of this busy time. Let me ask you a, a deeper philosophical question that, that I've been brainstorming on, because I didn't want to ask everybody the same questions, and I, I took some from the crowd. But this has come up in my mind a ton lately, is it just seems to me we have this situation in the country right now where we've we've been dominant for a very long time. We have China coming for us. As you mentioned, Iran is resurgent with its nefariousness. There are things that we don't even know as a nation that we need to know right now that are happening in the world. I mean, how do you begin as president to assess the things that we don't even know that we don't know, but we know we need to acquire the knowledge so we can start thinking about those things that are happening in the shadows unseen? Well, everything proceeds out of American strength. And I would tell you, if I'm president of the United States on job one, we're going to get this economy turned around. 
I mean, Joe Biden came into office and spent nearly $7 trillion in his first year, including $2 trillion in unnecessary COVID spending that launched the worst inflation in 40 years. And I don't know if you all heard about it, but uh, mortgage rates just hit a 20-year high yesterday. 8% going up. One of the reasons why the first plan that I put out was how do we tackle inflation? Uh, first thing you do is you turn off $3 trillion in unnecessary federal spending that hasn't been pushed out the door yet. Secondly, you unleash American energy again so we can achieve American energy independence because energy drives our economy. Third, you get back to rolling back three federal regulations for every new regulation put on the books. So you create an environment that restores our supply chain. But I got to tell you, I, I think, you know, you, you and I have known each other a long time. Back when I was in Congress, uh, a dozen years ago, I authored a bill to end what's called the dual mandate of the Fed. I mean, it was decades ago that we told the Federal Reserve, don't just worry about protecting the integrity of the dollar, we also want you to work on full employment. And, and I believe the time has come for us to end the dual mandate of the Fed and say that the Federal Reserve ought to be focused exclusively on protecting the integrity of the dollar fighting against inflation, and let's hold our presidents and our senators and our congressmen and our governors responsible for making sure we have full employment in the United States of America. You've got to get the Fed out of this business. And to that end, I also think, look, I, I, if, if I'm president of the United States, uh, we're going to get a new chairman at the Federal Reserve. I mean, this business of quantitative easing that's been underway, that's that set the stage for the worst inflation in 40 years. I think Jerome Powell's time is over, and uh, I'd love to see somebody like Judy Shelton appointed the Federal Reserve. You can Google it later and find out how good she is. Trust me. So when you look at the policy landscapes in the nation, and let's say you are blessed, you get elected, you're burdened with the presidency and all of its immense responsibilities. What do you, where do you want to chart the course for the country for the future? I mean, at the end of a Mike Pence administration, what does the nation look like? Well, I, as I said, I, look, I think America is the leader of the free world, but everything begins with American strength at home. And that's why, you know, our plan is to restore the American economy, I mean, literally to achieve energy independence again. And frankly, a nation without borders is not a nation. We've got to secure the southern border of the United States of America again, and we will. We did it before under our administration. I mean, we not only built hundreds of miles of border wall, but I negotiated the Remain in Mexico agreement with the Mexican government. We actually got them to let people wait in Mexico while they applied for asylum, and it's all of a sudden asylum abuse dropped through the floor, right? And uh, Title 42 is another tool, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we've, we've got to be strong at home so we can be strong in the future. The other piece of that is I think the time has come to put our fiscal house in order and be honest with the American people about the debt crisis that's facing those granddaughters of mine, it's facing your kids too. I mean, we have a debt today the size of our nation's economy for the first time since World War II. And more than 70% of all federal spending is in Social Security and Medicare. Now, Joe Biden's policy is insolvency. He, he won't even talk about uh, common sense reforms for younger Americans of these long-term entitlement programs. 
And frankly, my former running mate's policy is identical to Joe Biden's. They won't even talk about it. There's other people that will be on that debate stage next Wednesday night that have said literally that, that reforming government spending is somebody else's problem, some other president's problem. But I, I think it's an idea whose time has come. I think that runaway spending is driving inflation. That debt is driving inflation. And that's why I've, I've been willing to square my shoulders and say, look, if I'm president of the United States, I'm going to say to everybody with hair the same color as mine, this doesn't apply to you, right? If you're in retirement, we won't do anything to change it. If you're 40 years or older, we're not going to do anything to change it. I don't, I don't believe in changing horses in the middle of the stream. But if you're under the age of 40, I'd like to have a conversation with you. I'd like to talk about how we reform these programs, introduce changes that you'd never even notice by the time you got there, that'll preserve the program, that'll stave off a tidal wave of debt, and uh, also give younger Americans what I call a better deal than the New Deal programs of the last century by letting younger Americans invest a portion of their payroll taxes into a personal savings account. And then they'll have... They'll have their own savings account, not an IOU from the federal government. So it's about first putting our fiscal house in order, but you asked about America's role in the world. I mean, the reason that I think we, we have to take on these large intractable problems like the national debt is because I, I do think the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the politics of appeasement by the Biden administration have emboldened the enemies of freedom. And we have to have the wherewithal to build out that military I was talking about that'll keep the peace. Peace comes through strength. But the truth of the matter is that uh, the war that's raging in Eastern Europe, I think, never would have happened if we'd have, we'd have been reelected for four more years. Because that, uh, that withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think, I think emboldened Russia to make their move. I mean, you remember... Putin sought to redraw international lines by force under the Bush administration. He did it under the Obama administration, but he never even tried it under our administration because we made record investments in our national defense. We unleashed our military to take down the ISIS caliphate and their leader, and we took down Qasem Soleimani. So we demonstrated a willingness to use American force, and we were strong. But weakness arouses evil, Eric. And I think the weakness of this administration on the world stage has created a great peril for the American people. But the way that we can achieve peace for, for our nation uh, and ensure a more peaceful future is by, by building out a military, standing with our allies, standing up to our enemies. And if I'm your president, I promise we'll do that. You've mentioned Afghanistan. We're right around the two-year anniversary of that. And I thought it was notable the other day, Anthony Blinken said we got out all the Americans who wanted to get out, except we all know that's not true. And I know from people that who had to reach out to you that you were able to help them connect to others to rescue people in that country, and yet we still left people behind, and there's never been accountability. No one ever lost their job over that. Joe Biden's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disgrace. And it dishonored the service and sacrifice of, of men and women who defended our freedom in that country over the last 20 years. But let me be very clear, particularly those of us 
those who served who may be in the room and those that may be looking on, nothing of that disastrous withdrawal will ever diminish the honor and gratitude the American people owe to all those who defended our freedom in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. But I want to tell you, I say with conviction, it never would have happened on our watch. I mean, one of the things that we made clear in the deal that's, that lasted for 18 months was we said, look, uh, we're willing to withdraw troops. Now, history will record that I, I thought we should have left a small footprint of American forces there just to support our counterterrorism efforts. But the deal that was made about withdrawing troops said three things. Number one, you don't touch any Americans. Number two, you don't harbor terrorists. And number three, you work with the Afghan government. And we made it clear that if they broke the deal, all bets are off. In fact, we made it clear. I was, I was in the room when, when the former president actually said to the leader of the Taliban over the telephone, he said, you break the deal, we're going to hit you harder than we've ever hit you before. And meant it. That's why for the next 18 months, there was not a single American casualty in Afghanistan which is extraordinary. We've lost more than 2,000 Americans in that fight over the last 20 years. More than 20,000 wounded and injured. Not one American casualty. And it's because the Taliban knew we meant business. We'd established that, and, but whether it be the 58 cruise missiles into Syria or whether it be the actions against ISIS and Qasem Soleimani, they, they knew we were willing to use force to prosecute our interests. It was the lack of a credible threat of a use of force that when the Taliban started to move in the North, Biden did nothing. That all of a sudden the country literally collapsed. I mean, if you check what Vladimir Putin said when he invaded Ukraine, I think he thought Ukraine was going to go the way Afghanistan did. He literally predicted that uh, the Russian invasion, unconscionable invasion in Ukraine, would be over in a week. It's been 18 months. And frankly, with the support of the United States and our allies to the courageous fighters in Ukraine, uh, Russia's gone from the second most powerful military in the world to the second most powerful military in Ukraine in the last 18 months. That's what we used to call progress, right? But I, I, honestly, I honestly believe when you look at, at Afghanistan, the loss of those 13 service members on that day uh, is the greatest black mark of all. And I understand that now two years on, we marked the anniversary this last week, that the president has still not met with the families of the fallen who were lost at that Abbey Gate at the airport. But I, it's, you know, people sometimes, have, people sometimes ask, uh, you know, whether Joe Biden has lost a step. <laughs> Some people ask me if he's really still in charge. But let me assure you, I've known Joe Biden a long time. He's always been that wrong. <laughs> I mean, he has. And in my judgment, when you look at his long history, it, was, it would be Robert Gates, who was a Secretary of Defense under a Republican and a Democrat president. Robert Gates wrote in his autobiography that Joe Biden had been wrong about every foreign policy decision for the last 40 years. And while the... While the while President Biden has said that the generals told him to do it that way, I guarantee you that disastrous withdrawal, the buck stopped right at that table. That's why 
for the sake of our soldiers, for the sake of American leadership in the world, for the sake of our economy, for the sake of our liberties and our values, we have to decide here in Georgia and all over America that Joe Biden will never be reelected president of the United States of America. It's got to end. It's got to end in 18 months. So, I feel like I've got to ask you a, a very specific question that can only be asked of you on the campaign trail. Listening to our conversation and, and the things you reference about uh, your administration, and yet you're also running against the former president. So how do you distinguish and, and tell the American people that now is your time to be elected president? Well, look, I'll always be proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration. I'm proud of what we accomplished with the strong support of the people of Georgia. The strength in our military to secure our border, those. And I'm probably more proud of the fact that we appointed three of the justices to the Supreme Court who sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belonged. Uh, you know, I always stood loyally by President Donald Trump until my oath to the Constitution required me to do otherwise. But my differences with the president go far beyond that fateful day. And I hope to have a chance to debate him with him. Sometimes people ask me, how do you envision debating Donald Trump? And I say, I've debated Donald Trump a thousand times. Just, <laughs> just not with the cameras on. But look, we have real differences about the future of the country as well. I mean, some of the things I've touched on here, Eric, really come from the heart. I, I believe America is the leader of the free world, the arsenal of democracy. I, I, I frankly hear the former president and other candidates in the field wanting to pull back from American leadership, whether it be in Eastern Europe or confronting Iran or the balance. On the national debt, as I said, the former president's position is identical to Joe Biden's and others in the field want to walk away from confronting the debt crisis that's facing our children and grandchildren. I won't do that. I'm going to be committed to growth and to fiscal responsibility. And frankly, you know me, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. I appreciate the stand you've taken for the right to life throughout your career, Eric. It's been deeply meaningful. But I see people in the field, including my former running mate, that are shying away from the cause of life, trying to relegate it only to a state issue. Well, let me tell you, when, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, they returned the question of abortion to the states and the American people. And while I'll continue to, to champion pro-life policies like you advanced here uh, in Georgia and in other states around the country, uh, it's important to remember the American people also elect presidents, they elect senators, they elect congressmen. And I promise you that as president of the United States of America, pro-life Americans will have a champion for life in the Oval Office, and we will take the cause of life to the four corners of this country. When you were, before you were vice president, after leaving Congress, you were governor uh, the state of Indiana. You know, I still haven't been to Indiana. I'm going to get there at some point. But don't hold that against me. Well, you know, we have a race up there every May. That's I could get I've you heard. some. <laughs> I, I, okay. we, we 
zoom, zoom. I, 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 I don't know that it excites me that much. See, but I, I, I want to get there at some point. But you, you, ha- you had to live a governor's life as well for a time. Uh, and that involves education policy, and that involves yeah. uh, a lot of local policies. And now, having been in the federal government as well, you, you got to have a, a strong sense of how the federal government impedes the right. governors of the country from being able to execute their visions. Right. Well, it, it hasn't succeeded in impeding Governor Brian Kemp. It's true. Can we hear it for Governor Brian Kemp? He is easily one of the most successful conservative governors in America. But so proud of him. How, how, do you, how do you reform, I guess, the, the federal bureaucracy yeah. to free up the states to be able to yeah. do more? Well, you, you don't reform the federal bureaucracy. You make it smaller. Right? I mean, I hear a lot of people talking about we're going to reform this, reform that. I came out with a plan this week to restore federalism in this country, which begins by shutting down the Federal Department of Education and sending 100% of those resources back to the states to expand educational opportunities. I mean, I believe, and, and, and you, can, you can check it out. If you've lost interest in my remarks, you can look now. It's at MikePence2024.com. You You'll see our policy. We came out, not, we mentioned before inflation, energy, but this week I, I gave a speech to state legislators from across the country about restoring federalism. I mean, look, I, I, I've had a lifelong love affair with the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution is a document that describes a limited federal government throughout. And you get to the Tenth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Sometimes I say the Tenth Amendment is like the exclamation point at the end of the initial draft of the Constitution, right? Because it says, if you didn't get it so far, we'll tell you here in the Tenth Amendment that the powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. We need to get back to that wisdom of our founders. And this week I said, not only shut down the Federal Department of Education, but I want to block grant all housing resources, all welfare resources, and frankly, I want to rescind all Obamacare mandates and block grant all Obamacare resources back to the states for innovation and reform. Our founders had this idea, our founders had this idea that states would be these laboratories of innovation uh, and democracy. And yet I would, I would think, you're a bit of a historian, Eric, I would think maybe it's in the last 75 years that we've seen this slow, you know, uh, intrusion of the federal government into more and more and more decisions uh, in the states. And I just promise you, maybe, maybe it's because I, I was a governor and I understand the primary role that, that states play in those areas of government most important to us. But, you know, when I was a congressman, I used to remind people when I'd get on this, uh, this uh, tear, <laughs> I'd say, so remember, when you hear something go bump in the night, when you smell some smoke, you don't call your congressman, right? I mean, Thomas Jefferson said, "Govern that the governs least governs best. And we've got to get back to that principle. So while, while some in this field are talking about consolidating power in the executive branch to try and deal with the excesses of the federal government, uh, I aim to limit the size and scope of the federal government by restoring to the states and the American people what was always rightfully theirs. I promise you. All right. You've brought us into a wheelhouse of conversation that I love to talk about because there is this strain 
on our side that's growing that says we should use the federal government the way the left has used. And my response has always been they'll eventually get power back. So why not gut it so they can't use it either? Right. Well, I think that deserves a round of applause. Why don't we gut it? I may start using the word gut it. <laughs> that's pretty good. Look, we have a bloated federal government, really. And... Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it, it really does come down to understanding the antidote can be found in our founding documents. The cure for what ails this country is all, it's all enshrined there, everybody. It's just a matter of getting back, putting into practice what not only our founders crafted, but what generations of Americans have fought and died uh, to defend. And that's the principle of limited government, the liberties that are enshrined there, the ideals that, that ultimately, most importantly, the, in the Declaration of Independence, this, this notion that, we're, that we don't get our rights from sovereigns, we don't get our rights even from charters, but that we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that's at the center of the American experiment. And so I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we, we're going into a time where it seems like uh, that some in the conservative movement believe the answer to uh, the excesses of the left, particularly pressing down their political correctness on us in our schools and in the marketplaces, is to use their tactics to push back. And I, I, I just don't believe that. Uh, I, I, I think it's just as wrong for conservatives to use the power of the state to enforce our agenda as it's always been wrong for Democrats to use the power of government to enforce their agenda. This country is grounded in freedom. And if you, and if you doubt that, uh, just call Bud Light. <laughs> It's called Target, right? The American people know how to make their importance felt. Now that's, and that's about rhetorical leadership, right? I mean, pushing back, standing up for our values, our traditional values, and, and going into the marketplace. That's, that's the way I think that Republicans respond, not using the heavy hand of the state uh, to try and impose or punish uh, companies or corporations that are, aren't aligned. We, we, we can handle that. The American marketplace can handle that. And... Uh, I'm more convinced of that each and every day, that Americans are, we, we're, we're waking up to woke. Uh, we're sending a pretty deafening message across this country. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by what I see parents doing in schools around the country. You know, I, I, the foundation I created in Washington, Eric, uh, I've talked to you about before, but one of the lawsuits that we've gotten involved with is there's a school in Iowa called Linmar Community Schools where you had to have a permission slip from your parents to get a Tylenol from the school nurse, but you could get a gender transition plan from the health department without ever informing your family. I mean, that's not bad policy. That's crazy. Uh, and we're in a federal lawsuit to defend the right of parents. Parents don't co-parent with government. Amen. And I, and I heartily support efforts in Georgia and in states around the country uh, that have leaned into this effort to drive this radical gender identity politics uh, out of our schools. And I, I want you to know that. But, uh, but at, at the end of the day, um, 
as I said, I believe in limited government. <laughs> and I think, I think the future of the country, the prosperity of the country, the future of our movement is going to be grounded there. So let me ask you this, because this comes up a lot with, I guess, a more populist strain on the right these days. And they always say, what is conservatism conserved? And I, there are plenty of answers for it. But I mean, you, you are a student of conservative philosophy and been a leader in the conservative movement. So how do you respond to people who feel frustrated that the country is evolving or rapidly towards the left and conservatism hasn't done anything? Well, I, I have to tell you, traveling around the country, I still believe that that foundation of a commitment to a strong national defense, limited government, free market economics, traditional moral values, and the right to life is still the foundation of our movement. I mean, it was minted, you know, I, I became a Republican when Ronald Reagan was in the White House. Okay, admittedly, I was a Democrat youth coordinator in Bartholomew County, Indiana in the 70s. But then I heard the voice of Ronald Reagan. And in his voice, I started to hear the ideals that my grandfather who immigrated to this country from Ireland said. My, my father, who was a combat veteran, my mother, who's 90 years young to this day, precocious first-generation redhead, had raised me to believe in. And I joined the Reagan Revolution and never looked back. And I would tell you, there's a lot of talk about the Republican Party changing, and we, we have a good, vigorous debate in the party today about America's role in the world, about, uh, about what the priorities uh, of our party ought to be. But I still believe that the overwhelming majority of Republicans still believe in that common sense conservative agenda. And I think it's incumbent on us uh, to to produce leadership that will stand without apology on that agenda, that will add to it a recognition that China is the greatest economic and strategic threat of the country. I, I, I was the first in our administration to speak out about changing U.S. policy in China. Check it out. It was a speech at the Hudson Institute in 2018. Uh, others would follow all along the way, including the president and uh, Mike Pompeo, but I gave the first major address in the administration saying that we're going to change course. The idea that border security is national security. The idea that trade has to not only be free but fair. These have been built on top of that foundation. But I don't think that they've eviscerated the foundation. And uh, I not only think it's the pathway to victory in our party, but more important than that, I think that broad-based conservative American agenda is a pathway toward restoring America today and tomorrow, and always has been. Amen. I want to move back into foreign policy for just a little bit, because we do have this situation, and I've mentioned it earlier today as well, that You've had a series of coups now in, in Niger and in Mali. Mm -hmm. uh, you've had the Wagner troops have moved into West Africa. Islamic uh, extremists have been there. It, we have this growing threat, it seems like, in the shadows in West Africa with the resurgent Taliban. We're so busy as a nation, I think, focused, it seems like, on China and Russia, and yet it was Osama bin Laden who flew planes into buildings in, in New York. It wasn't a major world power. I mean, how do we need to be thinking about these terrorist situations after years of fighting a war on terror? Well, it, it, I, I would tell you, and I say this with all humility, but it's, it's one of the reasons we're running. Because this is no time for on-the-job training. 
mean, I, I spent more than a decade on the International Relations Committee in the Congress. My years as Vice President, I represented America around the world. I've, I've met with um, most of the leaders of the major countries in the world. I know I've had a chance to size them up personally. I, I understand what's going on. Um, and I, I really do believe that you're, you're right to touch on what's happened in Niger. You're right to touch on what's happening uh, in, uh, on the African continent. But make no mistake about it. I think it's all coming from the fact that, that the Biden administration has been AWOL on the world stage. I mean, we have a vacuum uh, of leadership on the world stage based upon the failed policies of the Biden administration. Not, not just the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, but the incomprehensible and relentless begging for Iran to get back in the Iranian nuclear deal. And, and to see the Biden administration last week, look, I, I welcome the release of any American held hostage anywhere in the world, and we worked hard in our administration to bring Americans home, like Pastor Brunson and others. But it is absolutely wrong for the Biden administration to pay $6 billion to the mullahs in Iran for the release of American hostages. That has made Americans all over the world less secure. And if I'm president of the United States, we will never uh, pay ransom for hostages. I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, folks, uh, that one took my breath away, but it's no real surprise because the Obama-Biden administration delivered pallets of cash to the Iranians. And, and so I understand that we do have this new axis forming uh, that involves Russia and China, and, but also Iran and North Korea. And, and, uh, and Iran today is back to sowing its malign influence across the region after a time that we we isolated Iran as never before, uh, and 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 I also must tell you, I, for years and years there was always this talk that the way you achieve peace in the Middle East was by being an honest broker, not picking sides. Well, under our administration, we made it clear: if the world knew nothing else, the world knew this: America stands with Israel, and we made that clear. We moved the embassy to Jerusalem. We recognized the Golan Heights. We took decisive steps to make it clear that, that Israel would have the ability to defend itself by itself. And look what happened. Not only was, was Iran that we managed to isolate more than ever before, but peace broke out. I mean, in, in the fall of 2020, I have to tell you, it was one of the most underreported stories in the country in the last 10 years was the signing of the Abraham Accords of two Arab nations that literally made peace and normalized all relations with Israel. And yet the Biden administration came in and immediately abandoned that path. They immediately went back to the politics of appeasement with Iran, the politics uh, of weakness and surrender and retreat in Afghanistan. And now wars raging in Eastern Europe. China continues to menace. And a word about China, may I? Just one more. Sure. I, I think it is incomprehensible after China sent a balloon over strategic sites in the United States, had their ships cutting off our ships in the South China Sea, had their aircraft cutting off our aircraft, the Asia Pacific, 
that President Biden literally sent the Secretary of State had in hand to go kowtow and ask for a meeting. I'm telling you what, those things happen on my watch. If I was president of the United States, I wouldn't have sent my Secretary of State. I'd have sent an aircraft carrier. And I would have said, you're, you're going to knock this stuff off now uh, or we'll send more until you want to sit down and have a conversation. Look, we, we, we have the ability to get China to change their behavior. We proved it. We put $250 billion in tariffs on China because we wanted to see an end to intellectual property theft, to trade abuses, to their military provocations in the Asia Pacific, let alone their uh, uh, human rights abuses, and religious persecution of Christians and Muslim Uyghurs in their own country. Um, and after we put those tariffs on, it, literally within, uh, within just a few short weeks, China called and said, we want to sit down. We negotiated what was called the phase one trade deal, which the Biden administration has utterly dropped. They haven't held China to it at all. But we can use a combination of, of building up our military, making sure our allies in the Asia Pacific know that we're here and we're here to stay. But secondly, um, using access to our economy, limiting access to our economy of authoritarian regimes like China uh, to leverage change in those countries. Uh, we, we proved in, in the first instance that that's the way to move forward, but we've got to bring about that change. But no more kowtowing to China uh, uh, under any administration uh, I would lead. We, we will lead forward with American strength in our relationship with China. And that's the best way to achieve peace and to have China open up their markets to U.S. goods. We got just over four minutes left, and you're, you're right where I wanted to go, but I want to talk about it in a different way. We have this southern border situation, but we also in the Western Hemisphere now have China and Iran. Right building relationships. Uh, forget the Monroe Doctrine now. We've got China's buying up lithium mines in, in South America. Uh, they're giving loans to Central American countries that those countries can't meet in exchange. They get to bring in their military to the Panama Canal and the like. We're seeing the fentanyl situation coming from China to Central America. It seems like we're almost in a situation already with China in Central and South America with people flooding across our border and God knows who is really coming across the border. Um, what do you do as president to not just restabilize the border but rebuild our strength in the Western Hemisphere? Well, I, I, I do think everything begins with border security. And I'm incredibly proud of the fact that through the course of it, you, you all remember we couldn't get the Democrats uh, in Congress to go along with giving us border wall funding. We ended up with a government shutdown at the end of 2018. And I was on Capitol Hill and I negotiated uh, a deal that reopened the government. And then we were able to repurpose funding from the Pentagon to build a wall. We reopened the government and we moved forward. Then we achieved and negotiated remain in Mexico. Then we put Title 42. We reduced illegal immigration and asylum abuse by 90%. And on day one of his administration, Joe Biden flew the, through the floodgates open. I've been down to that border. It's the most appalling thing that you could see. I mean, it looks, it looks like a parked railroad train that these girders rusting in the sun, almost as far as you can see, because they just, they took all these steel girders and just stopped building. I mean, when I was down there, one of three or four trips I've made to the southern border in the last two years, Eric, 
the Border Patrol agents told me two things. Number one, they showed me a big opening in the wall, and there was a, a lookout nest 100 yards across, and they said, that's a cartel operation. They, just, they watch you know, where we are, and they, that's how they figure out how to move this massive wave of humanity, which is the largest example of human trafficking in human history, with suffering on both sides of the border, but also drugs like fentanyl. They, and they'll tell you that, number two, the cartels are in operational control of the border. And that's why, in addition to continuing to finish the wall and putting these policies in effect that reduce illegal immigration, I'm going to sit down in the first few weeks of our administration with the president of Mexico and say, we're ready to go after the cartels. And we're going to, we're going to find a way. If you don't go after them, then we're, we're going to go after them. So let's sit down together and figure out. This is an international criminal organization that uses force and murder and, and is exploiting people all across the peninsula and all across South America. And, uh, and, and we've got we've to marshal the resources to deal with it. Secondly, on the, on the, on the frontier, I, I think the time has come for the United States to lean into a new economic Monroe Doctrine in our hemisphere. I mean, I, I represented our country on, on numerous trips across South America and Central America during my time as your vice president. And I, and I want to tell you, with very few exceptions, and there are a couple, those countries want to be aligned with the United States. They want to be working with the United States. But again, you see that you see the AWOL leadership of this administration literally walking away from engagement on the world stage, especially in our own front yard. And, and I believe that by engaging those nations, we can establish policies both from the standpoint of security and with regard to our economy that will ensure that this hemisphere remains a hemisphere of freedom for the 21st century, and we drive authoritarian region and authoritarian regimes out. That has to be a priority of the next American president. I, I know you had to move your schedule around to get here today, and it means the world to me that you and Karen pray for Christie, and I have valued our friendship for so long. I was rereading through the, the Russell Kirk book you sent me a while back. It is well-worn, and I just it, it, it frustrates me so much sometimes that so many on our side forget we have these principles we can go read these books and remember why we're here. Thank you so much for reminding us and thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, let me thank you, Eric, for being such a clarion voice for freedom and conservative values in the country. Um, and let me leave you all with an optimistic thought. You know, during all my time in the Congress and as governor and as your vice president, I'll be honest with you, my opinion to the federal government went down. <laughs> But my opinion of the American people went up every single day. I mean, I've seen the American people in good times and in tragic times. I've seen the American people when the hurricanes strike, when the floodwaters rise, when the wildfires rage like we just saw in Hawaii. And when you visit those areas after those natural disasters and sometimes disasters of human origin, the only thing you can't find in those neighborhoods is a parking space. Because we live in a country where when people hear something's gone wrong in the next town or in the next state, they load up tools and water and food in the back of the pickup truck, in the minivan, and they drive somewhere, they find somebody they'd never met before, 
and will never see again and help them rebuild their lives. And I saw it again and again and again. And I have to tell you, I believe the American people are the most generous, kind, freedom-loving, faith-filled, idealistic people the world has ever known. We just need government as good as our people again. And I'm going to work my heart out to earn your support and give that to the American people. So help me God. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you, Eric. Honored to be with you so much. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.